at the start of school and how warm it was because they really wanted fall to be damp and gray and it was quote depressing. <laughs> so so you know that they're Pacific Northwest kids. Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. Thrilled that you're here today. My conversation today is with my guest, Ronit Plank. Ronit is a Seattle area author and podcast host. She's uh, written a memoir called When She Comes Back, which is the story of her Ronit's childhood during the 70s and 80s while her mother had left to go follow a guru in India and ultimately in Oregon. Ronit also uh, created three different podcasts through the years, and then everything changed, The Body Myth, and her most recent is Let's Talk Memoir. We're going to talk about all of those a little bit during this conversation. We're going to talk about Seattle, things to do, and whole Ronit's whole backstory. She uh, grew up in New York but moved to Seattle at an early age. It's, it's a fascinating story, one that I, I found to be quite entertaining and um very informative. But before we get started, welcome to all of you who have maybe just found our show. Thrilled that you're here. Those of you that are regular listeners, thank you so much for checking in with us. If you ever need to get a hold of me, you can reach me at podcast at explorewashingtonstate.com. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd, you know, give us a share, give us a like, talk about it with your friends because that's how these type of shows grow. And let's get started. So, Ronit, Thanks for taking the time to sit with me today. Appreciate you doing this. Um, now that we've cleaned up our spilled water, <laughs> let's get started. It, Tell wasn't, my aud- it wasn't your spilled water. It was mine. Uh, you don't have to protect I, me. I was, I was, you know, <laughs> hey, I wasn't trying to completely throw you under the bus quite yet. So anyway, why don't you go ahead and, so this is what I know about you. Mm. You're an author. Mm-hmm. You have a podcast. Mm-hmm. You've got an, a really interesting backstory. Your, your memoir is an interesting story. And... But before I let you talk about yourself, I'm looking, I'm actually on your LinkedIn profile right now. And yeah. I've just, I could be, I could make, this may go over funny, which is intended to, it may go be a complete bomb, but let's just try it. <laughs> so it says experienced writer, the Atlantic, the Washington post, the Huffington post or Huff post, the Iowa review. Oh, okay. You're asking me uh, why uh, it's up I there. I think, I think <laughs> Iowa, I think corn, I don't think literature. Uh, What's the Iowa review? Okay, so um, the Iowa Review is a very well-respected literary journal. And yeah, this um, is going to bomb. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I get it. No, it totally makes sense. No, most people wouldn't know that. And sometimes I wonder when I when I submit work, you know, it depends on where I'm submitting. If I'm submitting for um, a very fast traffic place that doesn't really care about um, literature necessarily, I omit that from my bio, from my byline. But if it's if it's a literary magazine or a place where I'm I'm trying to write an article about craft and writing, then I always keep it in. I won runner up. I got second place in the the awards um, like seven or eight years ago for a short story that's now in a collection that's um, forthcoming from another press. And so nice. for me, it was like, it was a really big coup for me because I was a fairly new writer just starting to publish stories. And the fact that I placed in the contest, which have you ever heard of the Iowa Writers Workshop at all? 
So no, it's a see, very, that's... yes, it's a renowned yeah. writing program and people okay. who go out, you know, go there, come from there, people are really impressed. And so for me, even to be able to say that was made me really happy. Awesome. So, and I was just trying to be tongue in cheek because I drove through I Iowa <laughs> once. Iowa was miserable to drive through because it was just so just straight, flat corn. It was I mean, so you don't have to, to tell me. I'm a New Yorker living out in the Pacific Northwest, so I'll make fun of most places. Okay. Very good. So <laughs> writer, podcaster, yeah. what do you want to talk about? Writing, podcasting? Oh first. my gosh. Well, we, I bet you we could cover both. I mean, you're quick yeah. on your feet and so am I, and you know, you have a lot of experience in that, that realm. I would say like in general right now, I'm a mom of two. I've got teenagers. I've been living in Seattle since 2005, but in okay. my memoir, I talk about how it was the first place I lived really after leaving Israel. Um, mm -hmm. and so I have some young memories of Seattle as well as in my summers, um, as a teenager, I came to visit my mom out here and worked at Woodland Park Zoo as a volunteer. And I waitressed okay. at Ivar's on the water. Oh, and okay. um, yeah, I did a lot of like fun Seattle stuff back in the 80s and 90s. And now I live here raising a family. So that's interesting to me, like the change that's gone through my life as well as the city. And um, yeah, I've, I've, I've taken classes at University of Washington and Hugo House. And my okay. writing is a lot about parenting and self-worth. And I kind of, I have a whole bunch of different things we could talk about. Awesome. Well, really important. Do your kids like living in Seattle? Yes, I think they do. In fact, I was in a car recently with my daughter and her friends and they're 17, 16, and they were lamenting how sunny it was at the start of school and how warm it was because they really wanted fall to be damp and gray and it was, quote, depressing. <laughs> so, so you know that they're Pacific Northwest kids. Yeah, yeah they are. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> what was the impetus for you to start your career as a writer did you so did you start with a memoir or did you start writing other things before that what 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 got you yeah sitting down and writing well thanks for asking that so i actually used to act when i was in new york i studied with uda hagen and alfred molina and i was out of college out of a state school i went to binghamton and i thought i would try acting and so i started doing off off broadway like off 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 broadway black box theater you know one act plays to get agents to come to and um then i moved to la for an opportunity and i made my life in la which is where i met my husband and in la i I started doing improv. I performed improv shows and started working at the Actors Gang, which is Tim Robbins Theater. And luckily, about a year or two at the Actors Gang in LA, I got to write several pieces of theater that I got to perform, monologues, okay. sketch, you know, things like that. And I also did sketch at the Groundlings a little bit. And so that was my foray into writing. And my sister actually had told me for years, she's a TV writer and screenwriter as well as an actor. She said, why don't you write? And I really didn't see myself as a writer, but I guess she heard something in me. And so it wasn't until we moved to Seattle when my first was about five months old. And then I had my second that I went to University of Washington Extension and started taking fiction classes. And this is back in 2009. And actually at the time, I remember asking the teacher, should I take fiction or nonfiction? I don't actually even know really what to do. I don't even know what I like. So I started with fiction, started writing short stories, starting to publish them. And then I started writing essays that became more and more personal, things that were kind of bubbling up 
within me that became the foundation of what would be my memoir. And I ended up going to grad school at Pacific University on a low residency type of program. And I switched from fiction to memoir. And that's where I wrote my thesis, which was the beginning of my book, When She Comes Back. And so now I'd say I write a lot of nonfiction and memoir. I like to write parenting articles and self-care articles. I am dabbling in creative nonfiction and flash pieces like flash fiction, flash short stories, poetry, things like that. So I'm kind of all over the map. Let me interrupt you. What do you mean by flash pieces? Okay. So flash will be short and different places will have a different word, um, like a different amount of words that they require. So in general, flash fiction or flash nonfiction is a thousand words or less, but some flash publications want it 500 or less. And the place where I'm an editor, I'm an editor at the Citron Review, which is a flash, a short literary magazine. I mean, for short work. And Mm -hmm. I, I co-edit the creative nonfiction. So we only want 1000 words and less. And, um, I love that format because while I am an incredibly long-winded person, which you can tell, just in this short 10 minutes. Um, I love the idea of taking a story, shrinking it down to its essence and trying to convey what you want to convey in a, in a spare way. Well, and what I've read now, I'm, I am not an author. I'm not a writer. And I don't know if it was, was it Twain that was this Mm -hmm. quote, something I, um, you know, I would have, I would have been, I would have written a shorter letter, but I I didn't have Have enough time. time. Yeah. And, and and it is when you when you try to become econ- economy economical that words can be hard for me even though I talk a lot <laughs> economical with your words mm-hmm. it, what what do you cut out how do you replace what you cut out with something that's simpler and yeah more it's amazing it's such a feeling I love the feeling actually the very first time I ever did shrink a piece was I had a pretty long short story and I found a contest that wanted a thousand words. And, no, it was 500 words. And I just started hacking, 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 you know, chopping, dicing. And I ended up winning a contest for the prompt because of it. And I thought, okay. this is brilliant. You can do all the work on the front and then you can <laughs> shrink it and like make this really compact story. What's harder to do, but something I still love is to try to convey what you want economically from the, from the beginning, right? Just right out of the mm-hmm. gate. But, um, I also love playing with forms which are unexpected, which I'm just beginning to do this, but there's something called lyric essays, which are essays that kind of um, occupy space in a different way. They could be a list. They could be like, like, for example, a recipe. You talk about what you want to talk about in the guise of a recipe. So you're getting to create in all these ways that are outside of the box. And it's so fun for me because I'm kind of a type A person. And to be able to play that way with writing is really fun for me. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's talk about the memoir. Okay. Obviously, it's published. The listener should go grab a copy of it and read it in, in its entirety. But how about you just give us the the spiel, the the spiel, or the the <laughs> back of the cover review? I mean, yeah, what's, yeah, yeah. Let's okay. go the spiel. So essentially, um. Many listeners in this area and also in the Oregon area, are you laughing because you know what I'm going to say? I, no, I'm, I'm, I was going to insert my Oregon's dead to me line, but oh. it's, 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 well, you will be given permission to talk about Oregon. Okay. It's, a, I wanna, it's appropriate. Can we dig it's into a, that, Scott? I would like to know a little bit more about that. Um, uh, the Oregon's dead to me? Yeah. 
It's simply because this is the Exploring Washington State show. <laughs> okay. And so whenever I have guests from, you know, down oh, south, yeah. like Vancouver, they, they'll inevitably, like, somebody will go like, well, you know, I live in Vancouver, but I'd like to do this and this in Portland. And I'm just no. like, Portland's dead, Portland's dead to us. <laughs> it's just a joke. Portland's a great city. Oregon's fine. I have no, no, no beef with it. It's just the running gag. Yeah, I gotcha. Say. Well, um, okay. So essentially, there there is a guru. There was a guru named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh who had his start in India and then uh, relocated his ashram with the help of his right-hand woman, Ma Anand Sheila, back in the late 70s, early 80s to Antelope, Oregon. I had to say it. I'm sorry. I will not bring That's up okay. the place again. No, you can. And you can. Um, they established an ashram there. And what was very interesting about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was that he was sometimes known as the sex guru. And uh, that's not something I knew until much later in my life. And he had a giant following of Westerners, educated Westerners who flocked to try to explore their own enlightenment and sexuality and freedom and et cetera, and be told mm -hmm. kind of how to live, think and dress. And so uh, in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, my family uh, moved from Israel where I had been raised on a kibbutz. My parents mm -hmm. are American Jews, and we mm -hmm. moved to Seattle so my father could go to grad school at University of Washington. And they got divorced in, in Seattle. This is part of the book. The memoir opens around here. And my father moved to Jersey. He said goodbye to us and moved to Jersey. And then my mom was raising two young kids, me like five, four and a half, five, and my sister two and a half alone in a city she knew no one, out of a kibbutz, which is a work farm community for the first time in her life, she didn't even know how to write checks. Um, she she ended up becoming involved in a Bhagwan group, like a Rajneeshi meeting center in Capitol Hill. Her friend introduced her to books and tapes and she started listening. And so basically now I'll speed it up. Basically she decided she wanted to go to India and follow Bhagwan. She dropped us off in Jersey. And that's exactly where my book starts at the airport um, where she's dropping us off with our father who we haven't seen for a year because he left and we're really young. And so this is kind of a book about your parents leaving, going from a safe enclave, kind of almost idyllic, idyllic childhood to being dropped into divorce, an urban setting, parental loss, and trying to grow up without your mom there and always wanting her and, and being like the, in a family with a single father who doesn't quite know how to do it, even though he really wants to. And so that's, it's called when she comes back, because I spent most of my childhood waiting for my mom to return. I could go down so many, I, I mean, I have so many, so many questions about that. So this is in the, the, the eight, 1980s. Mm -hmm. And unlike today, you, you know, we all carry, and I'm holding up my iPhone for mm -hmm. those of you that are listening and can't see me, which is everyone, but I'm holding up my iPhone and we carry these with us. And we talk to people 24 seven. We, we you, you're, you're amazingly connected to people across the world, but we didn't have it, that connectivity back in the eighties. Did you hear from your mother at all during this period? I mean, yeah, were, you're were right you about in communication. Were you, did letters back and forth, long distance phone calls, at night type thing? Yeah, or? really good question. So the first place we lived, my sister and me, was in um, subsidized housing in Newark, New Jersey, where my father was living with his girlfriend at the time and her two daughters. And it was a very teeny apartment. And we were only supposed to be there for the summer. Um, but then my mom kept 
delaying her return from Pune, from India. And she, mm-hmm. we'd get letters that just, you know, love you. And like, I'm not coming back until, and then the date would move. And there were, there were some promised phone calls and very few of them happened. I think there is a scene where I'm waiting for my mom to call pretty much all day from India and she doesn't call. Um, my mom and I were not in touch really while she was gone and she was gone for almost a year before she returned. And then um, things kind of became, became a little more predictable. We started seeing her every other weekend and she kind of cut her hair and got rid of the nose ring and, you know, stopped wearing the jangly bracelets. And also all of these followers of Bhagwan, they were called sannyasins, would wear a black beaded necklace, a mala, at the end of which was his black and white photo, Bhagwan. So she was in the city for that first, you know, year wearing this. And we got to see her for a while. And then um, when the ranch opened up in Oregon, oh gosh, I said it again, she ended (laughs) up leaving again. She ended up leaving again. So she left twice, but the second time was really quite a blow because, I mean, they were both blows because I, I think I started to take for granted that our lives were predictable. And, you know, I had what I had. I had two households. My mom was still sort of there. I loved her. I loved my father. I was growing older, but once she left the second time, you know, things just really got bad for me. And um, it was really hard to write about that. And, you know, ultimately the book is also about reconciliation because I have a great relationship with my mom now. I have a great relationship with my father. I see my mom, like she lives five minutes away from me. We do Shabbat dinner, which is a Friday night dinner, culturally very Jewish. Uh, You know, we've talked about a lot of it. And there's a scene in my memoir toward the end about the very conversation that helped me feel even closer to her after all these years. And that was really important. And actually the book was written by the time that conversation, by the time we had that conversation that was really unexpected, the book was pretty much done. And I added it in, I added it and kind of edited because I thought it was so important. Okay. Did your, does your sister have a good relationship with your mother now? Yes. My sister's in California and, you know, I think birth order, Uh, And personality has so much to do with uh, a kid's, you know, a family dynamic, right? And I was Mm -hmm. the older, typical older, and I think I shielded her a bit from some of the stuff that was going on. And so our experiences were really different. And in many ways, she got closer to my dad than I did because I was sort of the partner to my father in the household. Without my mom there, I became very wife-like in terms of cooking and cleaning. And so that became a burden for me. Whereas mm-hmm. my sister didn't have that, but my sister has her own stuff. And, you know, she's definitely written a little bit about it too. And it's complicated, mm-hmm. but I think one thing in our family is that we really do try to, we're pretty honest. I mean, I don't think anyone could be ever a hundred percent honest because it's hard to even know what you think on any given day or who you are on any given day. But right. I think we try really hard to cut through garbage and try to be honest with each other. So through the years, then you've, you've made, you've reconciled with, with your mom and you have a good relationship with your father. So that's at least the story has a positive nature to it in some ways. Right. I mean, Mm. at least you have, you've you've got that. How long was your mom in Oregon? I said it now. (laughs) That was my trick. Um, That was my, I got you to do it. It was, that's all this interview was about Scott. Um, I, she was there toward the end. So if anyone remembers, and there's also a docu-series on Netflix called Wild Wild Country that 
really was popular in 2018, 2019. You can still find it. And it covers this whole story. Um, the FBI came, swooped in on the ranch uh, in November, October of that last year. I want to say ugh, 85. It's off. It's in my book. It's right. I can't remember. And um, my mom got there in June and everything kind of fell apart over there by the fall. So she was there at the tail end, but the branch itself was established for about five or six years. And they, for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, they had an airport, they had an airstrip and they had bus system and post office and restaurants and discotheques. Like they had a town, you know? See, I'm never, so what I remember, so in the mid eighties, I would have been in college and self-absorbed, um, <laughs> which is the only thing I can say now is that I'm not in college and I'm self-absorbed. I mean, no, if there's um, ever a time to be self-absorbed, right? Right. Yeah. But I remember what I remember of it is this gray hair, you know, black and white photos of the guy, right? Mm -hmm. Long beard, things like that. And I think I saw this on like a local, you know, Como King five news. I don't know which, but some, some local news. You know, he had a, a large number of Rolls Royces. Yes. That's that's what I remember. <laughs> I, I And I have not watched the, the Netflix documentary, so I did not know there was a bus system or a post office. or, oh, yeah. or I, I had no idea. Because what I question, this is, this is a, I don't know that you know the answer. This is, this is the rabbit hole I go down. Hmm. Have you ever talked to your mom about what life was like mm -hmm. on it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So was it, see, to me, when I see this guy with this opulent wealth and his, were his followers impoverished or was, were they mm -hmm. empowered? What mm -hmm. was, what was the life like on the, on the, on this property? I think that, um, so there was a lot of meditation. There was dynamic meditation, which I'm just going to start with the like easy stuff at, you know, the okay. dynamic meditation, this kind of stuff he, he kind of developed where you would get into such a frantic state, such an elevated state, breathing fast and moving your body so fast that you would just, you know, be exhausted and, and, and drop to the ground, you know, but you clears your mind in that kind of meditative or high exercise way. There okay. was, um, you had to wear colors of the sunset. Um, so people were wearing the oranges and they were wearing the blushes and then they were wearing red. It became more red later. That's how mm -hmm. you knew you wore the necklace. You would wear the mala. And I think everyone had their jobs. I think there was an inner circle in, in, on the ranch in Antelope inner circle. And then there were a lot of people living in houses and small little shacks and in small places. And they would do a lot of work. I mean, they, and they also, constructed this place out of nothing like this this was a big muddy ranch you know this was the big mm -hmm. muddy ranch for a long time they harvest they grew fields and fields of beautiful vegetables and they did all this gorgeous uh mining of the resources you know like it was really impressive actually but um things became a little more and more nefarious so while my mom was there i'm sure there was fun but there were also lectures and i think that there was open sexuality which to answer your earlier question my mom doesn't go into great detail with me about india or antelope and mm -hmm. it's not that i don't get the sense she's trying not to share it i really don't think she saw a lot of the stuff that people write about like she never okay. saw abusive therapy groups she says i mean she walked on hot coals 
You know, she mm-hmm. she wore the clothes. She she doesn't even remember seeing the kids that were on the ashram running around. And I have that in my book too. You know, what was it like for my mom to see these mm-hmm. kids when she was away from us? But I just think people, you know, we get blinders on sometimes and right. we just do what we need to do for ourselves, the self-absorption. And I do think, you know, echoing what you said about being in college and self-absorbed, I think is a really nice way to think about it. Bhagwan's whole thing was you need to become enlightened. You need to shed the, the, the harness of your family. Women should think about getting sterilized. Men should think about getting vasectomies. Children are an ab, you know, they're completely a distraction from your own journey. So families were not fostered here in, you know, whether or not you were left by your family or you were brought and you had to live there communally with other kids. I've talked to people who have survived that, you know, they were guests on my podcast. Like, it doesn't sound great. You know, like as much as I missed my mom, knowing what I know about those conditions, I'm super happy that I got to stay back. And, um, I think that even now when my mom looks back on it, she says, you know, even 10 years ago, I wouldn't have done something like that. But there were years after she came back where she'd quote Bhagwan to me, you know, she would offer advice based on a Bhagwanism and, you know, people were seekers. And I think that a a cult leader, a a spiritual, a quote, spiritual leader gives people permission to maybe not push themselves in ways that they could. You know, I think that it's such a fallacy for me in many ways when people go to seek, you know, gurus and spiritual enlightenment, but they're running away from themselves in often, you know, many cases and the connections where they could really learn. As a mom and as a wife, I've learned far more about myself and what I can do and what I can't do and where I need to work personally than I would than I would by going to some commune where people don't really know me or care about me. So this whole, you know, take off to go figure out who you are, like all we mm-hmm. are is what we are. Like we can get better, more honest, more vulnerable, more empowered, more confident, but the raw material is what we've got. And nowhere, mm-hmm. nowhere, you cannot fly away to find a better version of yourself. Especially to Oregon. Yeah, definitely Oregon. Yeah, I mean, not Oregon. Yeah, yeah. that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, sorry. The book, and I haven't read the book. So the question I'm going to ask, I should probably know the answer to ahead of time. Mm. Just giving mm-hmm. you that. But Who's the publisher and what mm. was that process like? Okay. Motina Books is the publisher and I found Motina Books. I'm part of a lot of writing communities on, you know, Facebook and Instagram. I've met so many lovely writers, especially memoirists, and I've hosted them, some of them on my podcast, and I've been a guest Mm -hmm. of theirs. And it's just been a lovely time to not be isolated during a pandemic. I've I've had a great Mm -hmm. book launch despite the pandemic being, you know, part of it. So I saw that this tiny publisher, uh, the tagline was books for mothers by mothers. And I thought, boom, that's perfect. And so I wrote to her and I sent her my proposal and we connected. We had a meeting on Zoom because she's in Texas and she wanted to work with me and I wanted to work with her. I had originally sent it out, you know, I did the agent search that a lot of people do. Uh, Writers will probably be familiar with this, but you know, that idea that you're going to be with a big press and, you know, you're going to have the, the front, the front of some stack at like Barnes and Noble, like that is a beautiful, beautiful dream that I hope one day maybe will belong to me as well. But it's also really hard to get your book 
published sometimes, especially memoir. I'm not famous. I didn't kill anyone. I, you know, wasn't addicted to something and escaped the commune. You know, like I'm just this mom who, you know, I'm just this like regular woman who went through a lot of stuff and I'm, I live to tell the tale. So I understood okay. about, about six months into the process that even if I found an agent, cause I did get some requests, even if I mm-hmm. did get a publisher or an agent, it would take a while for this book to come out. And because there's a delay in like editing and getting you set up and all that. And the Netflix docuseries was out, you know, people were talking about Bhagwan and I realized I need to get this out there. And this publisher loves my work and she's championing me. And so that's, that's what I did. I went with her and it's been a great relationship. And I've actually sent a lot of writers. I know her way. Okay. Question for you. So I recently, a few weeks ago, had a another Seattle area author on, and he had just released a book um, called The Lost Roadhouses of Seattle about the roadhouses in the King County, Snohomish County area during Prohibition, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So the question I asked him, and I'll ask you, where did you, what was the reaction when you saw, have you seen your book? In the Wild. In the wild. Yes. <laughs> okay. Where was it? Because what well, his answer was, I, I, it was I, caught me off guard. So my question to you is, what was your reaction when you saw the book for the first time in the wild? Uh, I was so happy. I saw it at Third Place Books Ravenna, and okay. I've seen it at Third Place Books Seward Park, and okay. um, I, I, I loved it. Like I, it was like I've also seen it at Queen Anne Books, um, and okay. of course it's on Amazon. So I don't know if that counts, but um, no, it, it's. <laughs> It does. It does. But but the point is, so I asked him this question, yeah, right? Yeah. I go, so where your first book, what, what was your, matter? and he goes, Oh, he goes, I was just, you know, kind of like you, it was like awesome. And all this. And I said, so where he, unlike you, he didn't volunteer. I said, so where was it the first place that you saw your book? He goes, Bartell drugs. <gasps> wow. And I was just like, huh. I go in to pick up a prescription and there's my book. Yeah. I, so but that that's actually good news. Cause that means that they feel it's a big, like it can sell a lot, you know? Right. And so I, you know, I was expecting him to say something like, like what you just said, mm-hmm. third place books mm-hmm. or, you know, is it still Elliot Bay books? Or yeah, it is. It is. Books? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I was expecting a local bookstore. That's what I was yeah. expecting, but no, it, was not expecting Bartell drugs. You know that what? Was, if if I fo- saw my book at a pharmacy, though, I'd be like, wow, that is a very like popular title, you know, because it's, you know, a memoir isn't for everyone. And a memoir about this kind of stuff isn't necessarily for everyone. Um, right. I, you know, and but I will say a recent review uh, mentioned that though the subject matter is complex and, and a little bit difficult, sometimes it's not triggering for, she wrote is not triggering somehow. It's kind of like magic that way. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think as a writer and as a mom and as a speaker, and just as someone who went through this, I, I I'm trying to write a book that I would want to read, you know? And so mm-hmm. the thing about a memoir is that you have to have this reflective voice, not just the story, but this like pondering, and introspection and trying to understand something, which hopefully mm-hmm. the reader will be excited about to try to figure out what you're trying to figure out. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I haven't had anything in my life remotely close to that experience, your experience um, to go through. Um, tangentially, there was something that happened in the seventies that impacted my father's boss and I, I, 
I, well, my father's, my father um, was working for a company and his boss's daughter was one of Ted Bundy's victims. Oh no. God. So, I mean, that, that, that was an iconically horrible story that lasted for, you know, many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being a young kid and having a young kid's observations of this, this individual who I would see on an occasional basis. And Mm -hmm. basically person was in my interpretation, just kind of a, a shell of a human being mm. the world was his world was ruined because mm-hmm. of this. So, but that's not, that's not my world. So I, I couldn't imagine, I guess what I'm trying to say in a long winded way or awkward ways, I couldn't, I don't know how I would be able to write about it. Mm-hmm. So I can, I'm, I'm imagining that for you to sit down and document it and write it and then have somebody say it's not triggering is a big, big compliment. Yeah. I mean, and I know I understand and recognize that that may not be the case for a different reader. Um, Everyone is so different, but Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely don't put anything in there for shock value. I, you know, at the end of the day, I want it to be a book that my children can read and that, and I showed the manuscript to my family before I made the final Mm -hmm. changes. I, that's important to me. I don't want to surprise anyone. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know what I'm, you know, my next book is a collection of short stories, which is a whole different, you know, bag. It's fiction. Great. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the next one will be after that. I, you know, I think it's really important to protect our kids' privacy and, you know, our family and honor people and, mm-hmm. and kind of walk the walk and, you know, talk the talk. Right. Well, we'll, we'll go there then. So you, you just mentioned you're doing a book of short stories. What, what, if anything, are you willing to share with us about that? Um, I am very happy to share. The, the book is called Home is a Made-Up Place, and it is uh, stories I published. All but one have been published before in magazines, including the Iowa Review, uh, <laughs> not the Atlantic. Sorry. Wait, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> Were any of them published in an Oregon? <laughs> no. Okay. No. Right. Yeah, I mean, that would be just too much. So, um I, yeah, so that, that won an award actually for women over 40 and, Mm -hmm. um, through an arts center called Hidden River Arts. And that's out of, um, Pennsylvania. And Mm -hmm. that is supposed to be out soon. I've got the cover art for it. It's another small press. Um, the publisher's a woman and, you know, this is the thing, like, I'm so delighted that anyone would like to package my short stories together to win to win the recognition, to win some money for that, and to be able to highlight these pieces that are in all different kinds of journals is just lovely. And so I'm super excited about that. I don't have a pub date yet. It should be soon. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that'll also be available wherever you find my stuff. So, yeah. So you don't have a publication date, Mm -mm. but safe, is it safe to assume the 2023? Yes, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Early, I then, hope. But, Early, I hope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. because uh, COVID delayed it. It was actually supposed to be out um, a little bit, like a, a couple of months ago. But because of COVID, there were a lot of delays in her other titles, and so mm-hmm. I'm like the last one of this crop. Yeah. Okay. But you don't have anything in the works for the next oh, gosh. project yet. You mean my, uh, yeah, my sophomore book is taken care of. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I actually, I was kind of vacillating between doing a nonfiction book 
that it required research and interviews and working on a novel, which I've been kind of writing on for a while. And then mm -hmm. I have all these little short pieces. So I'm not totally sure. I have to, I kind of was in that phase of really pushing myself and making myself sit down, which is good, but also realized, okay, whoa, 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 what do you want to do? And right now I'm getting ready to launch season two of Let's Talk Memoir. And that is a lot of interviews. I'm reading tons of books every week to prepare and get my guests, you know, books in my head so I can ask them the right questions. And so I think, you know, sometimes my stuff is less generative, but more productive. And then okay. I'll move back once those shows are recorded and post-production and, and in the world, then I'm back into my kind of, you know, generative creative space. Well, before we talk about your podcast, I'm going to put you on the spot. You mentioned a nonfiction what what would you write about if it was a nonfiction <laughs> title? What what well, would you what would you what are you gonna pull out? <laughs> I can't tell you too much about that because then it would be like, you know, my idea in the wind before I did anything. But I will say I love interviewing people, much like you. Like it's something I do a lot and I'm comfortable with it. Um I love okay. to learn more about things. I had thought about doing I did a short run of a podcast called The Body Myth. And so I thought about doing body image and women in America. And I started researching for that. I even wrote a proposal and everything, but then mm -hmm. I realized, you know, I'm not the one I spent a lot of time on it, but then I realized I'm not really the one to do this. I'm not a therapist. Huh? I'm not a doctor. I'm not living in a fat body. I don't have anything that different to say, except for the same tape that's running through my head as a lot of the women out there that I know, which one could argue is a reason to write it because it's so ubiquitous. But I thought, eh, I think I'm going to leave this to other people. And then I found out that one of my guests, who's an expert on misogyny, she's a philosopher, is writing a book about um, fat phobia. And I thought, well, actually, I want to read your book. I don't want to write mine. I was like, you're writing the book that I was going to, I wish I could have thought about writing. So I'm good with that okay. for now. But there's another, there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's been a lot of outreach from people who have survived parents leaving for cults. There's been a lot of outreach for people who have left coercive movements. <clears throat> so there's a part of me that was kind of in that field for a while when the book first came out. So there's lots mm -hmm. of things. I mean, I find, find a lot of things really interesting. And the mm -hmm. idea is, what do you want to spend time researching, interviewing, and writing about for years? Okay. I will give you credit for dodging that question extremely well <laughs> i think i gave you some actual you, you details did. I'm I'm i gave you some nuts and bolts so while while you were talking before i could ask my question you 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 said you're gearing up for your next season of your podcast you're reading lots of books yeah and and you take the exact opposite approach that i take <laughs> I, I go in well, i go in and in and I'm thinking about changing my approach candidly, but I go in for the most part with an open mind and trying to be very curious about what my guests are doing. And when I talk to authors, in some cases, I've not read the book. Mm -hmm. In your case, I haven't read your mm -hmm. book. Some cases I've read all of a book or part of a book or done a little reading online to get a synopsis, you know, the cliff notes of the book. Cause I, I truly like to genuinely be surprised, you know, and open to what you might say that, sparks curiosity in me. Mm -hmm. That's me. You, on the other hand, just said you're doing reading and all this. So before we talk about your show too much, I'd really like to just, out of my own curiosity, and sorry, listeners, you get to listen to what Scott wants to hear right now. <laughs> what, what do you do to prepare for an episode? 
Okay. I love this question because there's a contrast and I, I'm a lot like you in some ways. So the very first podcast um, that I did on my own is called, and then everything changed. And that was, that ran for two years. And that is about the pivotal moments in people's lives and the decisions that define them. So that was mm -hmm. stories of vulnerability, recovery, anything where they made a change in their life and are living that way. And so I loved doing that. And for that, I rarely read the books because I was kind of going into it like you. I would do a pre-interview, much like you do, just to get a sense of their story, to make sure that they've got something compelling to share, but not go mm -hmm. into it very, very detailed because I'd want that to be fresh for the interview. And so that's what right. I did for two years. But then um, I realized, wow, I've been, I've been writing about memoir. I wrote a memoir. I've learned a lot about memoir. I studied it in grad school. I do love the genre though I began as a self-hating memoirist, I didn't understand the genre and I didn't like get it compared to fiction. I'd, I'd why is this moving mm -hmm. so differently? You know, where's all the tension? And um, I realized that sometimes memoirs are lacking in tension, which make them less, you know, less effective memoirs, actually. Memoirs can read as interestingly as fiction, you know? So mm -hmm. anyhow, I decided to launch Let's Talk Memoir and I did that last year. And for that... I find the guests whose work I admire, guests who are teaching, books who have done that have done really well. And for the most part, I read their books. This season one, I didn't get to read much, many of their books because it was very cramped. This time, I'm reading all of their books. And I've got a mix of teachers, debut memoirists, memoirists who have been out for a long time. And I read the book, I take notes. And then I ask questions that are general questions like, you know, what are your favorite memoirs and what advice do you have for writers? Those are, I always ask, tell me about mm -hmm. your memoir, but then I'll dig deeper for the specific memoir. You know, if I'm talking to someone about they're talking, they're writing about voice and how important our voice is, you know, we'll spend that whole episode really dancing around and talking about the importance of voice and writing. There's so many aspects of memoir that I find very interesting. And most of my listeners, I would say, are not just people who love memoirs, but people who are writing theirs or who want to write theirs. And so they, they're okay. looking for some hands-on tools. And I'll tell you, just like you have a niche podcast here, I love having a niche podcast because the expectations are so different. And I've heard from so many people who will write to me and say, I love that episode. When's it coming back? Or can you please make sure you tell me the name of that author for that article you mentioned? Like, it's just been fantastic because, and then people have been sharing it, which I love. There will be writers and writing teachers who say they love my podcast, which means the world to me being a writer who only came to it about 10 years ago, right? Like it's a, a really big feeling of warmth and acceptance. And so I'm not trying to be, you know, would I love a million people to listen to my podcast? Yes. Do I think that Let's Talk Memoir is going to become a blockbuster hit? No. But I think that the people who enjoy it and, you know, gain something from it really love it. And it's evergreen, which I love because it's mm -hmm. always relevant. And some people are using it a little bit like a class. I'm, I'm on my iPad here and I'm scrolling through. Oh yeah. Some show Thanks notes for doing that. From your, from, for your, uh, so you did, so you did in season one, you did 15 episodes. Yes. Yes. How over, how often did you release? I released those every two weeks because on opposite weeks, okay. I was releasing the body myth 15 episodes. So I was like, let's talk memoir one week, the body myth the next week. Let's talk memoir one week <laughs> like that. Okay. This time we're launching on November 15th and it's going to be every week with a couple of other episodes in there where I speak about certain writing 
areas. And I'm mm-hmm. going to take a couple of episodes as well from And Then Everything Changed, where I interviewed beloved memoirists about their lives and move them into like a holiday bonus for Let's Talk Memoirs so people can in, enjoy their stories and learn about their lives. A little less about craft, but still mm-hmm. reaching new listeners. And how many episodes do you anticipate season two to be? Minimum of 15, but people reach out to me quite a lot. And there are still some people that I am waiting to hear from that are, you know, bigger guests. So I'm I'm happy Mm -hmm. to go longer. And then there's a couple of people that don't have books coming out until later in 2023. And so I might have to come back for a season three. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, darn. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's work, right? Like, like, you know, originally my husband, I remember he said to me, why are you doing all this podcasting stuff? You know, I thought you loved writing. You're a writer. Why are you doing all this podcasting stuff? But then he kind of came around and said, you know, he said to me two years after I started podcasting, I think you might have something there with the podcasting. And I was like, you think mm-hmm. really? Yeah. Well, and they're not mutually exclusive. No. But it does take time I mean, I, away, right? I mean, you do look with the amount of episodes you have, you, I don't even, I want to know like how often you're recording. I mean, you must be busy, yeah, I, I I am. And um, so today, for example, the day we're recording, I was supposed to have three. Mm-hmm. We had technical challenges on the first one. You're the second guest of the day. And I'll have one more later in the day. Mm-hmm. So three today. Mm-hmm. Um, I typically have two or three days a week where I talk to two or three people at a time mm-hmm. in a day. And then I take days where I don't I don't want to, I don't want to sit and have conversations with people every single day of the week. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't think it's good for the guests. Uh, That (laughs) was uh, very delicate. Um, Yeah. I I think also, so this is a really interesting uh, follow-up to what you said about, you know, what we're talking about because the skills and the resources are different. So with podcasting uh, with, and then everything changed the body myth. And now let's talk memoir. I'm very outward facing. I am, I am basically shooting out generosity and, and I'm giving myself too much credit, but I'm basically, my time is my guess. And while I live in fear of making a fool of myself and have imposter syndrome. So I do a lot of research and very much prepare because I don't want to look foolish on my own show. And I'm always worried I'm going to say something that's silly or doesn't make sense. So I over prepare and it's all about shining the light on my guest. And I, I, I've done that from the beginning. It's not a show where you're going to hear me yapping and telling you everything or interrupting you. It's not like what I'm doing here, where I'm, you know, taking the microphone and running with it. I'm basically there to, sh- to highlight my guest and to bring out whatever they can show my listeners or teach my listeners. Um, when I'm writing, it's very self-involved, right? I mean, it is in its own way. The editing process becomes less self-involved because I have to make sure my reader understands what I'm trying to do or can follow me. Mm-hmm. But that is just me time, insular, quiet, with my dogs, coffee, you know, hanging around and, and not answerable to anyone. I don't have to wear makeup. I don't have to make sure my voice is okay. You know, I love that. <laughs> I'm a very big introvert in some ways, you know? So that's why I'm asking you about how busy you are, because if I was only doing this every day, I definitely would not be able to write. So everything you said is completely valid. I, I, I agree with you. I just go a different direction. I too don't want to make a fool of myself. I too don't want to say something silly, but I also feel like 
if I do any preparation and I make a fool of myself, then I'm going to beat myself up for not prepping properly. So I don't prep. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I love, <laughs> so it's like, Oh, yeah, hey, I, I can at least say, you just looked up my you know, show hey. notes, you know, you're like, Hey, okay, we're yeah. talking about this. Let's look that up. Okay. You know, like, yeah, no, but, yeah. but you know, I, so, you know, to turn the tables, if, 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 if I were you, and I had written a memoir mm. and I'm on your show. You would have read the memoir. You would have had, you would have had thoughtful, insightful questions to ask me that you hope would open up a, a conversation that I would, you know, expand on. Right. Mm. I, on the other hand, <laughs> eh, let's just go yeah. and, and, and let you, you know, let you as the guest kind yeah. of steer it. Well, because you're also steer- like, you're, you're kind of a proxy for the listener then in that case, don't you think? Because I mean, I always think we're sort of proxy for the listener because we're, sure. we're asking the questions the listener might have, or we hope they might have that we can get to the heart of, you know, cause we've got yes. the guests right there. And, you know, I will say, I still always ask my, I always ask after I introduce my guest with like a bio, I welcome them. And then I say for people who haven't read your book yet, can you please share a little bit about your memoir? Because I want it in their words. I don't want to sit there and say, these are the themes in your book. I mean, I do later. I'll say, I noticed, but I want the writer to have a chance, you know, the guests to have a chance to frame it the way they want to, because that's probably their intention after you write a book and you spend so much time with it, you're no longer unsure what the themes are. You know, you pretty much know what people <laughs> are taking from it. Okay. Okay. So, so it's just, there's just different ways of, of all, yeah. um, of, of us, how we all handle these things. And, and that's, that's kind of the, the good and the not so good of podcasting is that any person with a microphone yes. <laughs> and an internet connection can go out and, spew whatever they wish to spew. Yeah. And I think some are very chatty. Like the very first podcast I ever did, I had a co-host and she invited me to be her co-host and it was very chatty. We were just back and forth bantering. It was only 22 minutes, 30 Mm -hmm. minutes, very good, very feminist and very chatty. We we didn't interview anyone. It was all about our personalities. And so I think when I first started podcasting, I kind of dimmed down. I wanted to be this comfortable armchair type of person who was listening, you know, just Mm -hmm. I'm here for you. And now I come to this one at least I feel the difference as more of like, I'm a peer of yours who has lots of Mm -hmm. questions, who knows I can learn more. Sure. No, I think that's right. And I, I like doing this because I've met in the last two and a half years, we've been doing this. I've had conversations with people and they have become friends in real life. Mm -hmm. You know, we go and occupy the same airspace and do things together socially. I've met, many people who have fascinating stories to tell about whatever it is they're doing um, from, you know, whether it's a, an artist who's, I had a conversation with a guy out of uh, Washougal, which is really close to Portland. So I had to be careful. With him. Um, and I just he, want to say like, I think you're bringing it up a lot more than me now. I, I know I do. And, 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 well, so how this came about, I will, I will, I will interject. So, I, I, early on in the in the podcast, I so I grew up in I grew up in the Tacoma area, right? And I grew up in the Tacoma in the seventies and eighties. And Tacoma in the seventies and eighties was not a great place, mm-hmm. you know. It was not like in what sense? Spokane, Do you mean dangerous, um, dirty, underdeveloped? You know, boring? All of the above. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, Tacoma during the during the eighties had a, a really large gang mm-hmm. population. Uh, uh, There's a very large military presence there in the, in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. You know. Those type of things. And Tacoma's just always been the, in my opinion, now I'm going to get hate mail for this, but that's okay. Tacoma's <laughs> always been under, under, 
underperforming. Mm-hmm. It has never lived up to its potential. Mm-hmm. But I still thought Tacoma was better in Spokane. And this isn't necessarily fair because I had only gone to Spokane like two or three times as a kid. And, but yet it was kind of the thing to do. Like kind of like maybe I'm imagining somebody from the city in New York would talk down about New Jersey. Oh, definitely. Or Staten Island. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, you know, and it's like, Oh dear from there. Do you know what the slang was when I was coming up um, for that bridge and tunnel, the bridge and tunnel people, because they have to, they're from the boroughs. They're not the boroughs in other parts. Yeah. Right. So early on in the, in the show, I made a comment about, how as a kid, as a teenager, I thought Spokane was this dumpy place. And that now as an adult, many years later, I go to Spokane. I like Spokane a lot. Public, everyone listen to Scott. Scott likes Spokane. <laughs> um, but these people started giving me, they started making comments about how I was, have you been to Spokane lately? And, and, and I had said I had. So I got to be careful what I say. I don't have to, but I choose to be careful what I say about Washington State. Mm-hmm. But Oregon's fair game. So I hear you. And it's just kind of, it's kind of a ring gag. Yeah. But, well, because I'm sure you choose Oregon over like Iowa. Oh, what? Really? I don't know. So here's what's funny mm-hmm. is that when I look at my podcast stats, I will not mention the city, <laughs> but there is one city in Oregon that's in the top 10 for listeners. That's interesting. I know, isn't it? And there's this, and actually in the top 10, there's one from New Jersey too. Really? So there you go. Yeah. That's interesting. So. So your prep, I like I like the difference in the way you're prepping versus the way I'm prepping. And so here's the thing. We all get to do our shows the yeah. way we want to and publish them, and they can be listened to or they can be ignored. Yeah. There's not a, a test you have to take to uh, to make a fool of yourself behind a microphone. No, I, I mean, it that's it's the good and the bad, right, of this. Right. But, of course, if you're really not producing good content, you're not going to have listeners, right? Right. Well, or even if you are, discoverability in podcasts can be kind of oh, challenging. Oh, it is. It's a very saturated market. So, so, yeah. And it, it anyway, and, and it's not something that I have found that is easy to go viral mm. on like an Instagram post or something that gets picked up by thousands and thousands mm, of people mm-hmm. keep sharing it. So you're going to be doing your new season. You're, you've got a book that's coming out. You're, you're you're kind of putting together a third something. book concept. Yeah. Something. Okay. So here's the part of the show where I ask questions that are more about your day-to-day life. Sure. Let's be really, the very most important question. Is I know what you're going to ask. Coffee. Uh-huh. Where around you is a great place to get coffee? I love Zoka Coffee Roasters. Um, okay. So Zoka, I, a long time ago when I started writing, I would go to the one in Tangletown. That's where I did most of my writing. And then I would do some by University Village, go to that one too. And I like them both a lot. The one in uni- by University Village, wow, it was so expansive. There was just this, it just went on and on forever with all these beautiful wood furnishings. And now they've sort of, it's gotten a little smaller. I think they must have rented out the other side, but the I love the coffee. Americanos are usually what I get. I, you know, I generally, okay. if I go, that's what I get. I don't get, I'm, I'm out of like the cap, don't do the cappuccinos or lattes. I just want an Americano and I'll have like a little bit of sugar and a little bit of cream. And I could drink a couple of those a day. Um, and the one in Tangletown is really nice too. And also, oh gosh, for the longest time, you didn't ask me this, but I have to tell you, they had the best muffin there and I haven't seen it lately. It was like this, like 
kind of berryish bran muffin and they'd warm it up and then I put butter on it and I was like, heaven, it was like the best thing ever. And so, um, I, I do, I do work from home a lot more than I used to. I used to write only out mm-hmm. of the house cause I felt like I needed that space, but, um, yeah. So if I'm out and about, that's my favorite actually. And I will say I'm a, like a medium to dark roast coffee lover. I, I know the youth is enjoying lighter roasts, which apparently are supposed to be more erudite and have more caffeine in them, but I, I can't help it. I like the toasty, roasty, like dark chocolatey kinds of coffees. Excellent. Answer. I'm, oh, good. Well, good. Good. I, Cause I would have given you a hard time if you would have said something like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a cappuccino with hemp milk or something. I I just, I don't, you know, I just don't need it, man. I'm just a, I'm a a black pour over coffee, French press, espresso, no sugar, no cream, every, just every Every now and then. When you're at home, Mm. coffee at home? Yes, yes. And this is funny because my partner, my husband does not drink coffee. He doesn't understand it. He drinks Earl Grey tea and he loves it. And I know, I know you're making a face for those of you who can't see it. He's making a face. He found this, I introduced him to this one that has beautiful little petals in it from the flower and he loves it. Like he's loves his tea. And for me, it's just like weak sauce, you know, it's weak. And so he thinks that I drink he, I make a pot of coffee, which is really, it's a drip coffee and I don't love it all the time. Okay. Sometimes I mess it up because I don't grind it right. Like for all these years, I should know how to do it. And, but sometimes it just doesn't strike me the right way. And so he thinks I'm sipping coffee all day long. He's like, Oh, look at you. And he'll, he'll pick up a mug and he just goes like he pretends. Cause I do drink fast, really fast. And mm-hmm. I tell him all the time, I make a half a pot, a thir- three quarters of a pot, and maybe I drink one, one and a half cup. I just never get to the rest of it. And so he thinks I'm a okay. coffee addict, but actually I'm just making it every day and I sip it. And um, the other thing I want to say about French press is the first time I ever had a French press, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I had never had coffee as delicious or as like, I felt like I needed a fork and knife to have it. Cause it was like so mm-hmm. delicious and chewy and amazing. And I had, I had been making that for a while and then I stopped, but talking to you now makes me want to do French press again because it is so good. Yeah. So what I heard <laughs> was your husband doesn't understand yeah. you. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but uh, what I heard was uh, you grind your beans. Yeah. You aren't always happy with your results. You make a half a pot or so, and you drink a little of it. So questions from that. What coffee beans do you typically have at home? 1859 from PCC. Um, That's my go-to. I love it. And so I I just memorize it. And when I check out, this is such a dorky story, but when I check out, they'll say, "Um, there's no number on here. And I'll say, oh, that's 1859. Because I I imagine that they should A, know that I'm only going to be getting that. And B, I have it committed to memory. Because even my husband who doesn't drink coffee, he's like, do you need some 1859 when he's at the store? I'm like, yep. So that's my go-to because it's not tart. It's not, it's not acidic. I don't like that at all. It's just, like I said, Mm -hmm. toasty, roasty. And um, if I'm in a, if I'm in a crunch, like if I'm somewhere and I need to buy beans and I'm in a shortage, I I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I will buy beans from Starbucks. Okay. I mean, I mean, their coffee is, look, anybody that gives shade to Starbucks is missing the point (laughs) because, well, I used to work there. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not why I'm saying this, but what I'm saying this is when you think about it, Yes, there was specialty coffee before Starbucks, mm-hmm. Seattle's, Seattle's, you know, Stuart Brothers in Seattle, Seattle's Best, Pete's, all these mm. things. 
and they've all kind of blended together and gone their own direction. But Starbucks was able to introduce the globe to the concept that paying $5 for a <laughs> cup of hot water with some beans in it, worth it was acceptable. You know, my, my right? parents were in Seattle when they were at a restaurant and they said, Hey, we're testing out. This is back in the seventies. We're testing out some new coffee. Tell us what you think. And it happened to be Starbucks. Yeah. But seriously, Starbucks was able to convince you and I that we should, it's, it's okay to give them $5 for a cup of coffee or more. Yes. And Zoka coffee would not be around or they wouldn't be charging what they're charging. Mm-hmm. So I drink Starbucks on occasion. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'll, I'll drink gas station coffee. It's, I'm not a coffee snob in that respect. I just drink a lot of coffee. Oh um, yeah. So how much do you drink? Coffee. Oh, six to 10 cups Get a day. Out. Really? Do you have to stop no. drinking at a certain point to go to sleep? I can literally have a cup of coffee on the nightstand and still I used to be like that, but now I'm getting older and now I kind of, I'm one of those people who has to stop by four. Yeah. And that doesn't make your teeth go like, ah, like you, that doesn't drive you up a wall. No. no. Hmm. Every now, every now and then it'll hit me every now and then. Do you compensate with a lot of water or electrolytes? I drink, I drink a lot of water. Don't drink electrolytes. I drink a lot of water, drink a lot of coffee. I don't drink sodas. I drink coffee. I love it. All right. All right. Okay. Another question I have is, and this is an easier one, uh, around yes, you, neighborhood-wise, yes. where's a great place to grab lunch? Well, this is this is very bougie. I I love to meet my friends at Mr. West at University Village. Um, it's okay. good. You order at the counter, and then you know what I love is getting the Mr. West potato chips, and they like sprinkle Parmesan cheese on them. Mm. Or they have yeah. I love like a really good Nicoise salad. They also have um, they have some really good vegan options, but they also have like grilled cheese and tomato soup. They have all kinds of yummy and okay. good pastries. I will say though, they have the kind of coffee I don't love that much, so I don't go there for the yeah. coffee. Um, you don't go there for the mm-hmm. coffee. Okay. Where else have I been going to lunch? We go to Babar, uh, that Vietnamese fusion restaurant. We love Babar. Okay. Um, that's a really popular one. Yeah, that's. I, I would say for lunch, that's where I go. I'm not a big sandwich person, really. So I okay. like like salads, noodles, soup, things like that. Okay. What do you in the family? Maybe it's just you and your husband because you got teenagers. Mm. Maybe they don't want to do anything with you. I don't know. Everyone, yeah, that pretty teenagers. much is the story. <laughs> yeah, every, every teenager, every every teenage household dynamic is a little different. But what what do you and your husband like to do uh, when you're not working? When we're not working, well, we have three dogs and we adore them. And my husband has become mm-hmm. quite the dog dad. Um, I used to work in animal shelters and I used to, you know, train sea lions and um, seals over at an aquarium in. Um, California. So I come from like animal husbandry experience, but he is okay. really, really gone all for it. Like he has a little fanny pack with treats. He wears a dog walking hat. I mean, it doesn't say dog walker, but it's like protects him from the sun. And he takes those little pups out and he's like so into it. So I would say what we love to do the most is we love to go out to dinner and spend time and have a nice cocktail and have good food. We love to watch a show that we're enjoying on the couch, seriously with the dogs. Like we're very mellow. We're not the hikers or the kayakers we just finished the great about Catherine the great we're done with season two which has um Elle Fanning as star and Nicholas Holt and it is so good a little bit body but we were just so happy to watch that show together on the couch with a blanket or two what type of dogs oh okay well 
we have an allergic kid. So the first two are um, non-shedding and I'm just going to say they are a paid for dog. And I am, I'm sorry because I did work in animal shelters, but we have a mm -hmm. kid with um, health stuff. So one is a black golden doodle who has mm -hmm. been gaining weight and is now 93 pounds. And the vet, we said, what's up with her back? And you know, what's up? They're like, well, she lost her waist. So we need to, we need to trim her up a little bit. We're really bad about that. She's a love. Then we have a cavapoo. And his name is Rocket, and he's amazing and spry. And then our last one okay. is a little mix of like Chihuahua, Dachshund, Pomeranian, a white, fluffy, adorable okay. dog. Yeah. Okay. All right. So they keep you busy. We have one. We have one. What do you have? It, uh, Bernie's hot dog. <gasps> we love those burners. Yeah. We. Yeah. He's a. Uh, he's over here off camera right it's now. Great. He's still asleep. Aww. Uh, as soon as I say that, though, he'll. I uh, I didn't know for a long time that big big dogs like that they often don't have need a ton of walks and they don't have a ton of energy necessarily. No, he, he does. He he doesn't. Okay. <laughs> he does and he doesn't. He does. He does and he doesn't. Um, he's a super sweet dog, super super stubborn mm. and single minded. What's his name? Bosley. Bosley. It's a good one. Yeah. Okay. How cute. All right. So last two questions for mm -hmm. you. So we'll wrap this up for you. So I don't know if anybody could hear that. That was him kind of snoring. <laughs> All right. So here we uh -huh, go. Uh -huh. One requires a, a very specific answer from you. The other one is a free form. Oh, answer. brother. Okay. I feel a little tense. Cake or pie uh. and why? Okay. This is horrible because I love both so much. I am so into the food and I, okay. I'm going to say. Oh, I'm going to, I'm sorry. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself, I'm not going to pigeonhole myself. I'm going to say this cake when it's a vanilla ish cake, that is like amazing and perfect. And the frosting is buttercream all day. That's what I want. Um, pie is amazing and slightly refreshing and it can be argued is somewhat good for you. So, you know, I love pie too. But you know what I don't right. really need is the crust. My husband likes to pick the crust off the edge. He'll eat, he'll take mm -hmm. your crust no matter what, even with quiche, mm -hmm. and I'll let him have mm -hmm. it. I don't need that stuff. Okay. So I didn't answer your question. Right. No, you, you I'm you passionate about and the food, though. What's really funny is I've been asking this question now. for. I stole this question from another podcast host. Uh, and, um, and unfortunately, the episode I recorded with her, the technology cut out. So she, her episode hasn't seen the light of day. Oh. And we're going to have to sit down and record this. So we'll get back to her next next season, if you will. So, but I think it's a great question because what's so funny is that people almost always act like you do. <laughs> what? I can't decide. You know, we're all so, you know, no. The other day I had a couple of guys, I asked them and they both answered like apple pie. I mean, that was, that was, it. It. That was like, yeah, next, next question. Okay. So then the final question is, what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? What didn't we cover that we should have brought up? Well, I'm going to say there is nothing in my head that I, I feel like you covered everything. You, this was a far reaching conversation and we got to spend a lot of time on, I feel like the significant parts. And I mean, gosh, we even talked about my dogs the only thing we didn't talk about is how much I like cheese. <laughs> and cheese, so, I mean, okay. I do love cheese and it's a problem. I'm a vegetarian. I'm like a sometimes pescatarian. And I know that okay. I, I would like ideally to eat less animal everything, but I, with the butter and the d delicious different cheeses, I mean, you put a cheese plate in front of me and I'm just like so happy. So I guess it's All a right, weird so way to go out, but it's the truth. 
All right. Well, so you, you kind of opened yourself up to the way I like to, to torture people. So I'm going to put you on the uh -huh. spot. You get one cheese for the rest of your mm. life. What's it going to be? I would say probably a Dauphinois um, or a Dauphinois or a Delice de Bourbon. Something creamy and rich. Yeah. Um, okay. Truffle cheeses are good. Um, and, you okay. know, Manchego is okay, but I like a little more, a little more creaminess. I love, I, okay. I love all the cheeses, but I would say probably some type of soft ripened situation. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Actually, I have one more question. This is about your kids. Oh, okay. do, do your kids listen to music much? They do. Um, my son so makes music. What are they listening to? Oh my gosh, oh, really? my son. Yeah. So they, okay. My daughter listens to a lot of, I don't even know what to call it stuff that I can't really find the rhythm to, or the melody. It's a lot of, it's a little rapish. She's like, she used to listen to Harry Styles, but she's 17 now. So she's kind of over that a little bit. She, <laughs> she's like listening to stuff that I, okay. Steve Lacey. She just went to that concert. She went to Tyler, the creator. So, you know, okay. she, yeah. Okay. And then she's going, yeah, she's done those. Okay, that's good. That's good information. My son is listening to LCD Sound System right now, listening to Beck. Um, very eclectic right now. Doesn't mind a lot of synth and kind of produced music. He's all over the map, but he plays bass and guitar, and he's composing his own stuff. Radiohead, okay, like cool. he can play like all the parts of a Radiohead song or two that he loves. So I, I, I think it's amazing. I used to sing, but I could never play anything. Okay. Where can people find out more about you online? Okay. Thanks for asking. Um, hey, was that music question about my kids a bonus? Was that a throw in? I was yeah. just, yeah, I was just, I just, I just realized because where I came from, as you mentioned, your kids when yeah. we first started, you have two yeah, teenagers. Yeah, 15 and 17. And then, and then we, you know, I kind of cut them out of what do you like to do when you're not working because they're teenagers, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. So, so I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, are they, do they like music? What yeah. are they listening to? What? I think they're pretty with yeah. it. Like they definitely know more than I ever did. So, um, People should find me, ronitplank.com. It's just Ronit Plank, which I'm sure will be in the show notes because it's a weird name. Yep. You can find me on my website is where you'll find my book. You'll find my published articles and short stories. You will find my podcast, everything. But you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and even TikTok under my name. So out of all those platforms. Where am I the most? Do you have a, what do you have, yeah, do you have a yeah, favorite? Yeah, Instagram, I'd say. I'm there a lot. Instagram. I'm on Instagram a lot. And that's okay. where I met a lot of people who became guests or featured me or, you know, talked about my book, you know, because they loved it, things like that. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Rooney, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me today. Thank you. Talk about your, your book and your journey. And, uh, I will, I'm actually going to go get a copy of the book and read it. Cause I, I love Do you to like read audio so books? it's not like it's, nah. you know, I went through a, I went through a phase mm -hmm. Um, I went through a phase where I really, um, I really did. My problem is when I listen to audiobooks, I'm, I'm typically doing something else. So it, yes, I know I exactly. Like, I, I never feel like I get the, yes. you know, I feel like, yeah, I'm kind of vaguely aware. So when I'm reading, I, I tend to just not be multitasking. I totally get that because that uh, happens with me when I listen to podcasts and I'm folding laundry. Sometimes I just completely zone out. But for anyone who's listening, it is available. I narrated the audiobook. It's about six hours long total listening time. And I had it produced in the studio here in Washington. Washington. So it's in paperback, ebook, audiobook. Yeah. So you can take your cho choice. So is it on is it it's on Amazon? Yeah. Is it it's local uh the in if you're in the Yeah, area, you can you can third place books or you can just say, Hey, can you get this? They'll get it like a day or two later, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, thank you thank so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful, Scott. 
Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.